This program is supported by an educational grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc., made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalog Season 2. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, part-time community, part-time academic. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from dermatologists outside your own center. This podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from expert dermatologists across the country. One of those experts is Dr. Riyad Al-Hussein. He's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and associate scientist at Sunnybrook Research Institute. He runs a full-time medical dermatology practice with a focus on cutaneous lymphoma, hydradenitis suppurativa, and autoimmune bullous disorders. He's a president of the Canadian HS Foundation. So, Rayed, first off, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of our podcast. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure uh, to be here. Awesome. Looking forward to it. You know what? I'm thinking uh, with all your credentials, we probably have another podcast or two up uh, up the sleeve that we could talk to you about HS and all the rest. But tonight I'll try to focus just on cutaneous lymphoma. Sounds good to me. So one of the things I remember about being a resident and trying to learn about cutaneous lymphoma was just the sheer number of different cutaneous lymphomides. Is that <laughs> lymphomas? I don't know how to uh, pluralize lymphoma. But do you have a general approach or something that you can tell the residents, like, here's a way that I kind of remember the big categories? That's a very good question. Uh, and I struggle with it myself. Part of it is really about their common skin lymphomas versus very rare ones. And it's always important to remember the common ones. And the rare ones, we tend to, every now and then, to go back to the textbook or the reference book to uh, look it up. But generally, the two common classifications are the WHO and the European classifications. And they came together in 2005 and then separated in 2008. And recently, they uh, also came up with a new classification. The two major categories are the T-cell lymphomas and the B-cell lymphomas. And uh, the T-cell lymphomas are more common. Uh, and among those, the mycosis fungoides is by far the most common type that uh, most dermatologists have been exposed to. Right. We also see Caesarean syndrome at uh, uh, the extreme end, and some people think about it at uh, a separate disease from mycosis fungoides. And then we run the less common types of T-cell lymphomas uh, that tend to be, to the most part, uh, more cytotoxic. So the CD8 cytotoxic type, uh, the extranodal uh, NK type, uh, and the gamma delta. Okay. On the other hand, we have the B-cell lymphomas, and there are three major categories there. We have the uh, follicle center and the marginal zone lymphoma, and then the large anaplastic B-cell lymphoma. That's it in a nutshell. I might have forgotten about uh, the peripheral T-cell lymphoma, for example, but that really speaks to the fact these are very rare types, and in many cases, when you're facing a challenging case, you might need to go back to the textbook to look it up. Okay, and I think that's always an important point when we're talking to residents that it's okay to not have it all immediately accessible in your brain. And sometimes you actually do have to go to a reference or a textbook um, to, to sort of look that up. So, you know, I suspect that if you're running a cutaneous lymphoma clinic, you probably have a lot of patients that are, that are already um, sorted out for you. So you know they're coming in with a lymphoma. But what do you think are some clinical clues that we should think about when we're just seeing an undifferentiated patient in a general derm clinic that may make you think, you know, hey, this could be a cutaneous lymphoma. 
I'll be speaking mostly about Mycos van Goydes because yeah. this is the one that is really challenging to us. It looks like atopic dermatitis or psoriasis, uh, two conditions that are much more common than uh, Mycos van Goydes. And I would start by saying uh, the distribution of the lesions is very important. In, right. in mycosis fungoides, we tend to have the bathing suit distribution uh, compared to involvement of the flexural areas in atopic dermatitis. The second important feature is in atopic dermatitis, lesions tend to be very ill-defined and excoriated, while in mycosis fungoides, they tend to be very well uh, demarcated. Mm-hmm. Uh, thirdly, and it's very important, we tend to overlook that, is the presence of itch or pruritus. When it is absent, that is a very important clue toward mycosis fungoides. When it's present, it doesn't really help in distinguishing between the two. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes when I see patients that I'm not really sure, I may give them a trial of topical steroids, see them back in four to six weeks, or, or do biopsies right from the outset. Um, as you would be well aware, you know, sometimes it's difficult to capture clear mycosis fungoides on a biopsy. Do you have any tips in terms of like biopsy technique, number of biopsies, you know, sweet spots for really catching the MF? Both of those approaches are reasonable. So we wanna, whether you want to start with a trial of topical therapy and if the patient is not responding, uh, you would biopsy it. I think it's important if you're suspecting the diagnosis is to make it clear to the patient from the get-go mm-hmm. that I have some suspicion about the diagnosis, but eczema or atopic dermatitis is much more common. That's why I want to start it as such at the beginning. And if you're not responding, we might need to take a biopsy. That would ensure uh, continuing to have the trust of the patient. Right. Uh, sometimes patients will lose trust if uh, you give them a diagnosis, you treat, they're not responding, and then you offer to do the biopsy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of biopsying, we, we know that it takes on average about three years from the time of suspecting a diagnosis to make a diagnosis. Right. And some studies have shown that you need up to 12 biopsies to make the diagnosis. Ooh. So my rule of thumb is at least two biopsies, if not three. Okay. Uh, I would go for the most indurated, uh, scaly uh, patches and try to, uh, or plaques actually, and uh, try to biopsy lesions with different morphology. Okay. Uh, uh, that is what uh, we are doing in the clinical setting. We're actually exploring the use of high-frequency ultrasound to examine some of those plaques prior to the biopsy to see the degree of inflammation and whether that's going to help in terms of uh, yielding uh, better results when we biopsy those areas. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, now, when you do a biopsy, like specific technique, are you a punch kind of person? I find in my office, I'm doing a lot of like larger shaves, which gives a bigger surface area. And I find I'm, I'm getting more, you know, positive MF diagnosis with that. But do you have a preferred technique? Right. So both of those are reasonable. And uh, because you want to give as much of the epidermis as possible, because most of the pathology is happening in the epidermis. I still prefer doing the punch biopsies because they provide a full thickness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the pathologist will have... Uh, uh, the full thickness of the skin to examine. Right. Uh, I do at least six millimeter punch biopsies and I do multiple biopsies. Okay. But yeah. uh, the shaves are reasonable as well. So with the six millimeter, you're getting a good a good piece there. Uh, my, right. my practical, you know, I'm in my office tip is that I don't have as much time to put in two stitches. So sometimes a shave with a cautery gives me a, a good piece um, and I might do something different at my academic clinic. So good, good point. Six millimeter, way to go. 
Uh, I don't know. I'm giving you a thumbs up, but no one's going to be able to see this. <laughs> Therefore, it makes it a little bit less impactful. Um, no, they can hear you. They can hear it in my voice. They're like, that was a thumbs up. Uh, so, okay. So we have our biopsy. At the time that you might suspect a cutaneous lymphoma, mycosis fungoides or whatnot, are there any basic investigations that you always tend to order or what kind of other investigations, lab, et cetera, should you be thinking about when you see these patients? So if I'm taking a biopsy and I'm suspecting mycosis fungoides or cutaneous tissue lymphoma, I am the type of person who would like to run all the basic investigations at the same time. So mm -hmm. when the patient comes up, I have a full answer uh, to them about uh, what's the diagnosis and the staging. Uh, so I typically would run the blood work. I would not do any imaging at the get-go unless on the exam I feel some palpable lymph nodes okay. or I'm suspecting someone with uh, advanced stage or if they have tumors or if they are erythrodermic. But if we're talking about someone with stage 1A or 1P, 1B with patches and plaques, uh, I will take the biopsies. I will run blood work, including uh, CBC with differentials. Uh, that will give me uh, uh, an estimate about the total lymphocyte count. Mm -hmm. uh, we would do LDH as well. Okay. Uh, and uh, we will do flow cytometry. And that's the most important thing that we order. Uh, and I specify to the uh, hematopathologist uh, that I'm suspecting Caesarean syndrome. Uh, and in some cases, I would actually specify to them what I'm looking for. So the CD4 to CD8 ratio, CD4, uh, CD4 uh, positive, CD7 negative, and CD4 positive, CD26 negative cells. And I ask them also to do the T-cell gene rearrangement. And I request blood film, although at, at our institution, they are uh, uh, moving away from that. But that's usual because it's one of the important diagnostic uh, criteria for Caesar syndrome. I still uh, write it down. Okay. Uh, at the same time, uh, if my suspicion is very high, I would also order some of the basic blood work for some of the medications mm -hmm. I might be using down the road. That was my next question. Okay. So you would mm -hmm. just, you know, always do it all at once, I guess, makes it easier for uh, the patient. And then also you have the information going forward. If you're thinking about doing flow cytometry, do you do that everybody or just in the people that you are suspecting more cesary or other involvement or systemic involvement, I should say? Yeah, at this point, we are running it for everybody that we're suspecting mycosis fungoides. Okay. Uh, we, in the last two years or so, we published our data with about 400 patients with stage 1A and 1B. And we what we found is... In stage 1A, really running those tests are, do not make any difference and do not pick up on anybody uh, changing their uh, staging. So we are in discussion now that probably in stage 1A, we don't need to run uh, the basic investigations, okay. especially if someone has been having those uh, patches for many, many years. Right. And do you think there's any role or utility of doing serum protein electrophoresis, or that's probably not really relevant in this case, these cases? In the case yeah, in the case of mycosis fungoides syndrome, really they have very limited value. Okay. Uh, your answer really relies. Uh, uh, your answer really is in uh, in the flow cytometry. Okay. Do you ever do extra tissue test on the tissue? I guess itself. Like, do you ever look at the? Um, this is more of a. I don't know if I should actually ask this as a question, but the, like, can you do flow on this? You do flow on the skin. You can, right? They can. Do you do flow on the skin? I guess is what I should be asking. Yeah, so we used to send fresh uh, tissue for flow cytometry. And the typical answer that we get is there's not enough tissue or enough cells mm. to do flow cytometry. Okay. We stopped doing that. The 
immune histochemistry by far is the most important. Okay. Uh, and so we're looking for the loss of CD7 and the fact that most of those infiltrates are CD4 positive. Okay. Um, before I talk to sort of diagnosis and discussing with patient, just thinking about the different clinical phenotypes of mycosis fungoides. And I mean, obviously... How much time do we have? <laughs> I was thinking to just hit the highlight. So I was thinking about the ones, you know, from... Um, there's, there's thinking about it from an exam perspective where you maybe have to have a, a bigger list, but then there's also thinking about just the, the things that you're going to see clinically. And, you know, in my, in my practice, I see mostly patch plaque, um, very rarely beyond that. Um, I occasionally see the, you know, follicular MF or things that might be a little bit um, clinically different. But do you have just a, do you have any little pearls or tips about the, the different clinical um you know, I guess when I was a resident, I was thinking, okay, follicular is more like it can be a little bit more aggressive, et cetera, et cetera. So are there any pearls with respect to the clinical phenotypes of MF that you may have to impart on the residents? Right. I remember a few years back, about seven years or so, uh, I was giving a talk to the resident and I wanted to impress them. So I asked them to name <laughs> all the types of mycosis fungoides that they know. And once they're done, I showed them a table with 32 different types. Whoa. Uh, in reality, though, uh, as you said, the most common are the patches and plaques. Mm -hmm. uh, by far, this is the most this is the most common type. Uh, we see a lot of folliculotropic MF, mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's important from from people think about it from prognostic uh, side. I think about it more from uh, treatment uh, okay. choice. Uh, yeah. And then we see a lot of the hyperpigmented and hypopigmented variants. Uh, by, far the, by far, those are the most common types, uh, in addition to the poikilodermatous variant as well. Okay. Now, um, thinking about the hypopigmented, I guess that always, in my mind, uh, I have a picture of sort of the, when kids have MF, it tends to be that hypopigmented type, um, or at least the, you know, what two that I've ever seen. Um, what makes you suspect MF in, in a child or an adolescent? Are there clinical clues in that population? Or is it more just, you know, not responding to traditional treatments for, other, you know, atopic dermatitis? Right. What applied to this is similar to what we talked about at the beginning, okay. which is the distribution of the lesions by far are important. Okay. And the fact that they're very well demarcated and the presence or absence of itch. Those are still by far the most important uh, uh, elements in in, uh, in suspecting mycosis fungoides uh, in those patients. Okay. And I know it's not that common in children, but it's always one of those things that comes up. And in, in particular, you know, usually at academic rounds, et cetera. But. Right. And we see, see the hypopigmented variant in adults as well. Yes. They tend to be of darker skin as well. Right. That's right. Okay. So let's say now you have a patient, you have a 60-year-old male. You've proven that the biopsy is mycosis fungoides. You're in the patch plaque stage or maybe, you know, um, stage two. How do you discuss that with the patient? Like, how do you, what do you tell them? How do you prognosticate? Are you very specific? Do you just kind of give them generalizations or like, what do you, I, I'm saying too much here, but okay. <clears throat> I'm just going to say instead, like, how do you break the news to the patient or how do you disclose the um, diagnosis and what do you tell them about prognostic um, factors? Right. I start with that at the time of the initial consultation. Okay. If I suspect mycosis fungoides, and I tell them 
this could be a common form of eczema psoriasis, but we are wondering whether this could be something else, some of the rare entities that can evolve the skin, including some types of skin cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I start by saying, uh, explaining how the immune system is involved in the skin. Right. Uh, we talk about, uh, I usually use the example of uh, the immune system is, a, is like a car factory, and the factory itself is in the bone marrow, and once the cars or the cells are made, they are stamped to go to different parts of the body. So some will go to the lungs to protect against anything that we breathe in, right. and some of them are stamped to go to the skin. And once it is those cells that go to the skin, once they are in the stand, skin, they start multiplying out of control. The rest of your immune system is intact. Uh, the process is only happening in the skin, and... If someone is having stage 1A or B, I, I, I'm very comfortable telling them that this is a disease that we do not expect to affect how long you're going to live. Right. There is no cure for, for it, but the aim is to bring it under control with treatment. The same way we would think about eczema or psoriasis, and that in most cases, the treatments we use for it are actually the same treatments we use to treat eczema or psoriasis, whether it's the topical therapies or phototherapies or even some of the systemic medications we'd be using. Okay. I start with that, and based on the uh, how the patients take the news and the question they ask, I would go into more details. I like that way better, because usually what I say is it's a type of lymphoma of your skin. It's not of the lymph nodes, but it's lymph cells in your skin and they're always like what so i like your car factory better what type of cars are being delivered to the skin well uh, the stamp we're using uh is the cutaneous lymphoma receptor four uh so that's the stamp that is used the cells know that they need to go to the skin you're nicer than that i was gonna say like is it a mercedes it is a kia like <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so you've given the patient the information. You've you've uh, you've told them about their prognosis. How do you approach treatment in early stage mycosis fungoides? Because I think one of the things that I find confusing or found confusing as a resident, and I find sometimes patients find confusing, is the idea of there is no cure. Why are you clearing it if it doesn't bother them on their skin? Like who cares? How aggressive are you in terms of initial managements? Part of that is reading the patient right. uh, himself or herself, uh, how anxious they are about the, about the diagnosis and uh, whether they're symptomatic or not. Okay. So I would start with the fact uh, that, especially if someone had the disease for many years, I say the fact you've had this disease for many years and without treatment and it did nothing mm -hmm. is a very good indication. This is a very low-grade lymphoma that's very unlikely to do anything in the future. Right. One option is we do nothing. If this does not bother you, it's not causing any symptoms, it's not in a part of the body that you, you care about having spots, uh, let's say like the face for, uh, or exposed areas. Right. One reasonable option is to do nothing. Okay. If we are to treat, I then go down the uh, options of treatment. I would discuss with them the topical steroids as an option. Mm -hmm. uh, if someone has... Uh, involvement of uh, larger body surface area. I'll talk about the phototherapy. I will also tell them that if we are to use a systemic medication in a low-grade disease, I doubt that I'll be using any other medication other than systemic retinoids. Right. And the choice of the systemic retinoids really depends on, on multiple factors. Okay. When I was a resident, we were still using nitrogen mustard 
um, and carmustine. To me, it's something that we can't readily access here anymore. Do you at all use that in your practice? Uh, I do remember uh, studying about how to mix the nitrogen mustard for the exam. Uh, I'm glad to say that we don't have access to it. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty I, messy. I haven't used I haven't used it in many years. Yeah. Uh, although it made it back uh, in the United States, uh, uh, so there's actually it's been formulated into a gel. Uh, it's very expensive though. Yeah. Uh, it's not available. To my knowledge, it's not avail- readily available in Canada, okay. except for compounding pharmacies, certain compounding pharmacies. Right. And even that is very challenging. I know even the compounding pharmacy we used to access it from here in the East Coast no longer um, makes it. If you use phototherapy, what light modality do you think is most effective for uh, mycosis fungoides? Like UVA, PUVA, narrowband, does it really matter? I typically would start with UVB. Narrowband UVB is available across uh, in many centers, so it's much easier easier to uh, administer and for patients to have access to. Uh, We did a study with all the patients we treated at PERC here in Toronto, and what we found is the response rate was very comparable between PUVA and narrowband UVB, between 58% for narrowband to 65% for PUVA. It is really the duration of the effect after stopping the treatment. It lasts about 9 to 11 months with narrowband compared to 21 months with PUVA. Uh, So uh, I would offer PUVA to patients who tend to have uh, thicker plaques just to get the deeper penetration Mm -hmm. or patients that have been treating with narrowband UVB and uh, they're not responding to treatment. Okay. And then you did mention systemic retinoids as being an option for the um, milder cases. Do you have a retinoid of preference? I mean, in theory, I feel like allotretinoin would be a good choice, but that can sometimes be challenging to access from a, like, or it can be cost prohibitive. So do you have a, a retinoid that you prefer to start with? Allotretinoin would be my first choice if uh, the patient can access that treatment. Okay. And the reason for that is, it has uh, activity against the retinoid X receptor, which is very similar to Bixarotene, the only approved medication uh, in the States and Europe. Um, What I sometimes use, remember that those patients have been diagnosed with dermatitis before. They might have had biopsies showing dermatitis. So uh, they, in some cases, they actually have a disease that uh, alitronoin is is approved to treat. Okay. in other cases, patients have private insurance that uh, would uh, would cover that medication. Right. The advantage of alitretinoin compared to other retinoids is I find it very effective as monotherapy without the need to combine it with phototherapy. While for isotretinoin uh, or acetretin, they seem to only work when combined with phototherapy. They don't seem to be that effective as uh, monotherapy options. Okay. Yeah. Now, do you think there's any utility in using topical retinoids ever for maybe people that just have limited disease? I know some of my colleagues use it. Uh, I've used it in few patients. You could use it in selected group patients, patients with uh, one or two thicker plaques or tumors that are not uh, responding to your uh, uh, other medication that you're using. I find that degree of irritation uh, bothers patients mm-hmm. that they tend to stop the medication. 
in I rarely would use a uh, tocotrienoid, although it's one of the uh, commonly used uh, treatment options. Okay. And then say you're moving into um, higher stage MF. Do you have some preferred, uh, do you tend to use uh, systemic medications? Do you tend to use uh, photophoresis? You know, are there, how do you decide where you're going to go in the more um, aggressive cases, I guess? I want to start by saying we need to make it very clear. There's a distinction between early stage mycosis fungoides, which is the patch black stage between 1A and 2A, and the advanced stages, patients with tumors uh, or erythrodermic or scissor syndrome, right. if you're in the group that think they're the same disease. Yeah. Um, once you get to the point of having tumors and or erythrodermic patients, you really need to involve uh, uh, the hematologist uh, in the process. Yes. Uh, uh, because many of those medications that the patient will need uh, usually are administered through the hematology service. But in general, the extracorporeal photophoresis or ECP works very well when there is a significant uh, burden of the disease in the blood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's primarily, the burden is primarily in the skin, uh, ECP still effective, but it doesn't seem to be as effective as patients with significant blood involvement. Okay. Uh, if the, the issue is having few isolated tumors here and there, uh, using radiation can be very effective, or even interlegion analog for mm-hmm. those tumors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but patients with multiple tumors or erythrodermic, uh, then we need to up our game. And the, the choices really depends on multiple factors, how healthy is the patient, the patient age, whether they will be able to tolerate uh, uh, certain medications. Interferon is one of the uh, uh, very useful medications, uh, but because of the potential for side effects, whether uh, mood changes, uh, flu-like symptoms, or hepatotoxicity, uh, usually people over the age of 60 or 70 are less likely to, to, to tolerate it. Um, what we find very useful in that group of patients is using single-agent monotherapy, uh, chemotherapy. Okay. Uh, chlorambucil, doxorubicin, uh, we find those uh, patients tolerate and they're very gentle. Um, we also use uh, HDAC inhibitors, so varinostat uh, or romadipsin. They mostly are useful for pruritus rather than uh, uh, helping the disease itself. Although in a small subset of patients, they uh, benefit both the pruritus and the disease. Okay. So do you run a combined clinic then with hematology for advanced cases? We do. So we have uh, a monthly combined clinic with uh, hematology. Uh, Our rule is all patients need to be seen there once. Uh, So patients with early stage, just for further counseling, they are linked to a hematologist in the unlikely scenario that they will need to be seen in the future. It it also helps in terms of uh, running our research project, so we have all the information in one place. Right. Um, Patients with more advanced disease are continued to be followed in that clinic. Okay, that was my next question, which is at what point do you definitively involve hematology, but it sounds like outset to get baseline stuff and then only patients that require ongoing management will will continue in that clinic. Um, One of the residents had this question. 
reached the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi, Dermalogs. This is Danny Manser from UBC Dermatology. My question is about Cesare syndrome. If we suspect this diagnosis on call, what investigations should we order and what should our inpatient management be? This would be very similar to what we talked about at the beginning, okay. which is doing the biopsies, mm-hmm. multiple biopsies from different sites, uh, running the baseline blood work uh, with uh, flow cytometry and LDH. Uh, if on exam there are uh, palpable lymph nodes, then you want to do your uh, and your uh, index of suspicion is high, is running the uh, imaging at the same time as well. That would be from a diagnostic point of view. Managing the patient at the beginning until you get the diagnosis would be managing any patient, similar to managing any patient with erythroderma. So supportive care uh, and topical therapies would be reasonable to start with. If you want to use a mitigation at the get-go until you get further information, you could use methotrexate. It's a medication that works for atopic dermatitis and psoriasis and can be helpful at, or at least not harmful for mycosis fungoides yeah. and scissory syndrome. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair that's a fair place to start, I guess, until you get everything differentiated. Okay, let's listen to another question from one of the dermatology residents. Hi, Dermalogs. This is Naomi Labonte Truong at the University of Montreal. My question is how do you counsel patients on the possible progression of large plaque parapsoriasis to cutaneous T-cell lymphoma? And I guess there's a pre-question to that, which is, do you believe that there is an entity called large plaque parapsoriasis? That's a fair point. Uh, I think by you making that comment, you're uh, agreeing that this is a disputed entity, whether it really exists or not. I want to start by saying, so there's, we have small plaque parasoriasis, and I think most people agree it, it does exist, and it's a separate mm-hmm. entity. While the large plaque parasoriasis, there are two schools of thought. Is this a uh, uh, standalone entity, or is it part of mycosis fungoides? I find it much easier for myself and the patients, is this is a type of mycosis fungoides. The morphology, you cannot really distinguish based on that. The pathology, you cannot distinguish based on that. And more importantly, the treatment is the same. So to me, and this is, so Ackerman in pathology is one of those who, who was uh, were uh, uh, believers in uh, lumping them together. And this is the way I trained and, and I find it makes, it makes my life much easier uh, doing it that way. Thinking about that first disease category, so like you said, you know, differentiating out the two sort of main diseases, so there's the the sick people with MF, and then there's the not sick people with MF. How often do you see the not sick people with MF, like the stage 1A, 2, 2A type of thing? How often would you tend to see them is question part one. And part two is, do you follow those patients in perpetuity, or do you ever refer them back to their primary care physician to keep an eye on, and then you only see them if things right. change. Um, so remember, you're breaking the news to a patient that they have cancer and lymphoma. So at the beginning, I, I like to see them uh, on regular intervals. Uh, someone with a stage 1A, I might see them in about three to four months after the initial consultation, uh, just to make sure that the treatment is working for them, that they're not uh, super anxious, they don't have more questions that need to be answered. And once we develop that uh, relation, 
eventually it goes down to probably once a year. Uh, uh, I like to keep following those patients. Uh, that gives them um, uh, that peace of mind. But if a patient says it's difficult really to come back here for follow-up, I'm more than happy to pass them along and say, well, I'm more than happy to see you in the future if you have any concerns. Patients where I'm really worried about, they're okay. the bad one B. They have thick plaques. Uh, I'm worried about disease progression. Those patients, mm-hmm. I, will cl- I will continue to keep a very close eye okay. on them. And like, so close eye by every three months, every six months, every week <laughs> i'm just kidding not every week right uh depends also on the treatment i'm using and whether something the treatment itself would need monitoring but on average every three to four months uh, okay i wouldn't go beyond every six months in that category okay good mm-hmm. good to know before we sort of shift gears a little bit to talk briefly about some of the other cutaneous lymphomas do you have any other do you think there's anything we didn't cover with respect to mf that is really important for the residents to know uh, i think an important point to us is prognosis and mm-hmm. it would be very helpful to us to know or to, to uh, have a way of distinguishing between patients who are more likely to progress versus patients who are very likely to do very well or on the long term mm-hmm. and there are different studies that try to identify prognostic factors uh, one of the most useful tools is the CLIPI tool the cutaneous lymphoma international prognostic index and this breaks patients into early stage and late stage. Uh, in the early stage, there are five points uh, that are taken into consideration. Male gender, age over 60, uh, presence of follicular lesions, uh, presence of plaques compared to patches, and then palpable lymph nodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have low risk, those patients with less than two points, and then medium risk patients with two points and patients over two points are the high risk patients. So anybody with uh, two or more, we need to keep a closer eye on them. Okay. I learned something new. See, I learn something new every time I do one of these and I have not heard of the Clippy tool. So there we go. New thing for me to read about. Before we completely move away from T-cell lymphomas, the residents had one other question. Hi, Dermalogs. This is Matthew Hughes, and I'm a third-year dermatology resident at the University of Calgary. My question is, what factors on history and clinical examination make you suspicious for subcutaneous paniculitis-like T-cell lymphoma? Another good question. Um, So remember, those patients present with paniculitis, Mm -hmm. uh, and the most common paniculitis is erythema nodosum. So what are the things that make an erythema nodosum atypical? Number one, persistence versus uh, recurrent episodes with complete clearing in between. Whenever you see that, uh, it's important to consider alternative diagnoses. And I, my practice is anybody with suspected paniculitis, I would perform a biopsy to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of uh, subcutaneous paniculitis like TC lymphoma, they tend to be on the lower extremities, similar to erythema nodosum, but they are, they on pathology, it is a lobular paniculitis, okay. similar to uh, lupus paniculitis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in further examination on pathology, the patients will have atypical cells, uh, new plastic cells. Uh, it becomes really challenging in distinguishing between lupus paniculitis and uh, subcutaneous paniculitis like T-cell lymphoma. Uh, 
but some people even consider this, uh, those are two entities uh, in a spectrum. Uh, about 20% of patients with, uh, uh, with the T-cell lymphoma actually are either ANA positive or have more features uh, of uh, lupus paniculitis. Okay. <laughs> okay. So think about it is the main, the main point there. Now, just shifting gears a little bit, I mean, the, the majority of what I think we said at the beginning, what we see is, you know, uh, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, mostly mycosis fungoides. But from time to time, we do see B-cell lymphomas. And uh, I guess I'm just thinking about what would be some clinical tips that you might use to think about a B-cell lymphoma. Like I always kind of say, you know, firm weird looking nodules always kind of get me suspicious. So I, I biopsy them and I think about lymphomas or leukemias, but do you have any better ways than my way of wonky looking hard stuff? I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> I like your way of thinking. <laughs> All about right. It. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm feeling good. Uh, to the most part, though, as you mentioned, uh, they tend to be plum colored or reddish brown dome shaped uh, nodules. Um, mm-hmm. They, in most cases, they're asymptomatic. Uh, they could be individual lesions or a few scattered lesions. The low-grade B-cell lymphomas typically are uh, either on the head and neck or upper trunk, mm-hmm. uh, while the more aggressive lymphomas, the large anaplastic T-cell lymph- uh, B-cell lymphoma, uh, tend to be on the uh, lower extremity, although there are exceptions to the rule. But I think uh, plum-colored uh nodules or indurated plaques with no epidermal change, uh, especially if asymptomatic biopsy. Yeah, because I mean, when I think about that, the other thing on my differential in that scenario is some type of cutaneous metastasis. So either way, you got to figure out what it is. Um, and I guess, you know, it's, it's, it would be difficult to talk about all the different ways that you would manage all the different B cell lymphomas, et cetera. And I think in those cases, you probably, again, do very similar, um, you know, work up and involve hematology when necessary. Would that be fair to say? It's actually very easy. Oh, uh, never mind. Be- <laughs> because you have, for all. You have low-grade lymphomas and you have uh, aggressive B-cell lymphomas. Okay. The treatment for the low-grade lymphomas is the same. Again, prognosis is great. Uh, so once you do your baseline workup, which is the uh, blood work uh, to the most part and the imaging, once you've confirmed this is a primary cutaneous low-grade B-cell lymphoma, again, the options are to do nothing, to inject with interlegion cantalog. Uh, to the most part, this is what you need to do. In very rare cases, patients have one lesion and someone excise that lesion or radiation if it's a very large lesion. Uh, I don't... I don't. I really would need to do anything beyond that. Okay. While... With the aggressive uh, lymphoma, you really need to pass them on to the hematologist and uh, uh, as early as possible. And mm-hmm. uh, despite that, the prognosis is not always that great. Right. Yeah, fair. Um, now, the residents had one other question, and I, I have to admit, I've never actually heard of this, so I don't know if you know the answer. Hi, Dermalogs. This is Misha Zerbafian at UBC Dermatology. My question is, do breast implants increase the risk of anaplastic large cell lymphoma? How do you counsel patients around this risk? Yeah, that's, a, that's an important question. We, we rarely get asked about it in dermatology. This is not a patient who typically would present to dermatology. Uh, those are, 
first of all, very, very rare. Uh, number two, they happen after breast implants, uh, sometimes within a year or so, and sometimes after many, many years. And they present with a lump in the area. So those patients would typically end up seeing a plastic surgeon or uh, in a breast clinic because there is suspicion about breast cancer. Um, that being said, because of my interest in uh, skin lymphoma, we get asked uh, rarely about that. The bottom line is this. What we know is there are, there are few case reports about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, it is a very rare uh, complication. Mm-hmm. Um, in one epidemiological study from the Netherlands over, uh, I think, 16 years, they had only 11 cases of anaplastic large cell lymphoma uh, uh, on the breast, and of those, five patients had breast implants. So the rate itself, the absolute risk is very low, uh, although compared to... If you have a breast implant and evolve a lymphoma in the breast, it's very likely to be an anaplastic large cell lymphoma compared to the other types of lymphoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that the FDA have reported on is that the texture of the implant seems to play a role. The risk seems to be higher with the texture compared to smooth uh, implants. The content of the implant itself does not make any difference. Okay. Oh, very interesting. I did not know that either. So... I've learned a number of different things this evening. Um, I kind of asked if there was anything that you thought we hadn't covered in MF, but you know, it's it's impossible to talk about all the subtypes of all the types of cutaneous lymphoma, obviously. But is there anything that you just say, listen, I have the audience of all the Canadian dermatology residents. I just want them to know, bleh. Is there anything that we haven't covered? I think we covered the important things. Uh, there are always rare things that come here and there and uh that's where the going back to the textbook or uh having or calling the, you basically is what i would do that i'll be more i'll be delighted <laughs> to answer the phone we'll put your phone number at the end of this podcast i'm just kidding we're not going to do that but um well listen thank you so much for joining me on this episode of dermalogs right i learned a number of things i think the residents are going to learn a lot as well so i really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That was Dr. Rayad Al-Hussein, Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto, Associate Scientist at Sunnybrook Research Institute, and the President of the Canadian HS Foundation. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes. And if you liked it, give us a rating, tell your friends, colleagues, share on social media. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.